If you belong to Jesus' kingdom, God has given you a powerful influence in the world around you. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. And on today's program, Tom begins a brand new eight-part series called The Power of Your Influence. We'll be exploring Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus teaches on the power of teaching and instruction, moral example, and he uses the pictures of salt and light. Throughout this series, you'll learn some wrong ideas about Christian influence, as well as how to promote genuine and preserving influence in the world. You'll be challenged to examine what influences you the most, and then carefully discern the power of your own influence. Now, before we begin, let's join Tom here with some opening thoughts. Tom? Well, Bill, in this series, Jesus is going to help us understand that as his disciples, you and I have the power to influence the people around us. And not just the power to do that, but we have the responsibility to do that. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus deals with this issue of influence using the image of two different powerful pictures, salt and light, one negative, the other positive, to describe the power of our influence. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now and let's join Tom Pennington right here on The Word Unleashed. When God created the physical universe, He established certain laws that govern how the physical universe operates. We understand that. There's the law of gravity. There's the second law of thermodynamics. There are other laws like that that God created that govern how the physical world operates. You can ignore those laws. You can deny them. But if you try to deny them to a certain extent, you'll do so at your own peril. Try the law of gravity, for example. It will work whether you believe it will work or not. It is a reality. When God created the moral universe in which we live and have our existence, he also established with that moral universe specific laws that govern it. Laws like the law of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow spiritually, you will reap. It's a reality as clear in the spiritual world as it is in the physical world. You can't sow corn and get lettuce. There is a principle of what you sow, you reap, and what, to what extent you sow, that is the extent to which you reap. The same thing is inviolably true in the spiritual world as well. But one of the laws that governs the moral universe in which we live that we don't think about a lot is the law that Jesus brings us to today. We could call it the law of influence. God created in his moral universe the power of influence. He determined that we could be shaped and influenced in various ways and that we would have the power to influence others. It's a really remarkable law that God has put within the fabric of the moral universe. But what are the ways in which this influence comes to us? How are we influenced and how do we influence? 
First of all, there's the influence of genetic inheritance. We are influenced by our genetic makeup, by the sin nature we inherited from Adam, and each of us individually is influenced by the traits and qualities that we inherited from our parents. That's not a death sentence. We don't have to be exactly like our parents in every way. But we do, we are influenced by those genetic markers, those things that we inherit. A second way that we're influenced is the influence of physical proximity. You can be influenced by someone just by being near them. The power of the influence of physical proximity. There's the influence of teaching and instruction. We are shaped and influenced by those people or those resources that we accept and affirm as our teachers. Whether they're books you read or people, you let certain people, certain resources serve as your instructor. You sit as it were at their feet and you are influenced by them as am I. My life has been forever shaped by the men under whose ministry I have sat. And fourthly, there is the influence of moral example. The influence of moral example. We understand the power of example. In fact, all of us can think of people in our own lives who have influenced us for good. We are the people we are today to a certain extent because we bear the mark of their moral influence. And of course, the same process falls out negatively as well, doesn't it? We can be influenced for evil. Most of us have heard some form of the saying, one bad apple spoils what? The whole bunch or the whole barrel. That's a biblical concept. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We are influenced by the moral example of the people that we choose to hang with and be around. The Bible often uses the imagery of leaven to illustrate this reality. For example, Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, talking about their tolerating the, the man who was involved in incest and not disciplining him, says this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A little yeast is going to spread through the whole lump. You're all going to be affected by the evil influence if you let it stay. So those are the primary means of influence. That's how we are influenced in the world, by by the genes that we can do nothing about, by physical proximity, by teaching and instruction, as well as by moral example. Now, in the passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we come to today, Jesus is primarily addressing the last two of those, teaching and instruction and moral example. And his primary point is that as his disciples you and I have the power to influence the world around us. And not just the power, but the responsibility. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus deals with this issue of influence. And he uses two images, salt and light, to describe the power of our influence. One of those images is negative, the other positive. Let me read it to you, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Coming out of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now just to remind you of the context in which these verses occur, we've looked at the Beatitudes, and the first, there are eight Beatitudes, the first seven of those Beatitudes describe the character of those who are truly Christian, those who belong to Jesus' spiritual kingdom. This is what they look like. This is who they are. The last beatitude, the eighth one, that comes in verses 10 through 12, that's kind of the transition to the text I just read to you, describes not our character, but the response of the world to us. And in a word, their response is persecution in various ways, in various forms. Can be a simple attitude of hatred for us, resentment, anger, can be verbal abuse, either to us or about us to others, verbal ridicule, can be slander, and at times it can even be physical violence. That's how the world responds to those who are truly Christ, who live like the Beatitudes, the other seven Beatitudes describe. It's how they responded to Christ. Jesus says you shouldn't be surprised when they respond to you the same way. Now, in verses 13 to 16, Jesus describes how we are to respond to the world. Verses 10 through 12, here's how the world's going to treat you. But let me tell you what you are to do to the world, Jesus says. Jesus explains in these verses the purpose that God has designed for every Christian to serve in the world. Here is our mission in these two profound pictures. Reduced to its simplest form, we could say that your mission to the world is to be one of influence. It's to be influence. If you belong to Jesus' kingdom, God has given you a powerful influence in the world around you. What is influence? The English word influence comes from a Latin word that means to flow into something. The idea is that one person's power flows into the life of another. Here's how the Oxford Dictionary defines influence. It is an action exerted imperceptibly or by indirect means by one person or thing on another so as to cause changes in conduct, development, conditions, etc. So there is an imperceptible power that passes from us to another person that produces a change in how they respond, a change in how they act. That's influence. And that's the power that we've been given. Now, before we look at what Jesus teaches here, I want to first do as we have often done. I want to step away from the text, and I want to clear the ground a little bit. I want to clear away the rubble of confused thinking, because there are a number of wrong ideas about Christian influence that are very popular in the Christian community today. And undoubtedly, we have all been influenced by them. Wrong ideas about Christian influence. 
Specifically, let me give you three of them. Here's the way not to think about our influence. First of all, a wrong idea is using the wrong means to influence. Using the wrong means to influence. And there are so many different skewed perspectives Christians have about the wrong means to influence the world. Let me just let you think of a couple. There are those who believe that we should use the means of becoming more and more like the world in order to influence the world. This approach goes by various names. It's sometimes called contextualization. It's sometimes called accommodation. The idea here is that if the church does what unbelievers do, it will be better able to influence them. The closer we can get in our actions and behavior to the way the world thinks and lives and behaves, the greater our influence will be. This approach started out innocently enough. It started out a number of years ago now just trying to make the services of the church more comfortable to unbelievers. Let's remove the obvious barriers to unbelievers. Nothing wrong with that. You don't want the church to intentionally be a barrier to unbelievers. But that's where it started. And then it went another step to say not only let's make them comfortable or let's make them where they're not uncomfortable, but let's design the entire service for unbelievers. Let's make everything where they're perfectly comfortable. Let's make it about them. And today that has morphed into something far more. Today it means doing outlandish things that in the past the church would have never thought about doing all under the auspices or intention of increasing our influence. You say, what does this look like? Let me give you a couple of examples. For example, one church in California near where I used to live decided they wanted to have a a better outreach to men. Well, how do you reach unbelieving men? Well, let's make them comfortable. So instead of the traditional men's kinds of activities that reflect the priorities of Scripture or the priorities of Christian activity, instead, let's have a men's event that features beer and poker. I'm not making this up. Other churches intentionally rent bars and nightclubs to have their services or meetings because unbelievers will be comfortable there. It has become completely routine, and a number of churches around us routinely have secular music in their services when they meet. And not just any secular music, but bad secular music. Secular music with bad themes. For example, one church like this on Easter Sunday morning played ACDC's Highway to Hell. Welcome to Easter. One of the architects of this approach in American evangelicalism is the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, a man named Mark Driscoll. We would agree with much of what he believes. He's solidly reformed in his doctrine of salvation. But he believes that to reach the people of Seattle, he and his church must accommodate their lifestyle. So to accomplish that, he's done a number of things that are frankly both biblically and historically inappropriate. He has often used foul language in his messages, even cursed during his messages. He's comfortable using crude sexual jokes from the pulpit. He often references some of the worst of the culture, all in this desire to become as much like the people around him in Seattle as he can be so that he can have a greater influence on them. 
But this theory, this theory of accommodation and contextualization misunderstands the way to reach and influence the world. Jesus says we are salt and light. Salt is diametrically opposite of everything that is non-salt. And light is the opposite of darkness. It's a wrong means. Another wrong means is through political action. Of course, Christians should vote. Christians should be good citizens. But there are still many Christians, in spite of the history of the last... 30 years, who continue to believe that the way they can exert the greatest influence on the culture is by making sure we get the right political candidates in office. Good luck. Our influence is not political, but personal. Another wrong means is through externals. This view says that the way Christians influence the world around them is by just being odd, by looking different, by dressing differently, by having 50 to 100-year-old styles. This is the approach of legalism. It says, and by the way, this is true in every faith. You can see this in just about any faith in the world. Those who really think this is the way that you can provide that influence. You have to be oddly different. So often we fail to use our influence because we resort to the wrong means. Means like accommodation, political action, legalism. Now, a second wrong idea that undermines our influence is not only using the wrong means, but secondly, having the wrong goals. Sadly, many Christians are confused about the purpose for our influence. Many Christians have come to think that the chief reason we ought to be an influence on the world around us, salt on the world around us, is making this planet or our country or our community a better place to live. Really? Folks, that's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It may look a little nicer, but the ship is sinking and will go down. It doesn't help. It's the wrong goal for our influence. Our goal, the mission God has given us, as we'll see in these verses, is not about making life more comfortable for us and the people around us. There's a third wrong idea, not only using the wrong means, having the wrong goals, but thirdly, denying or ignoring your influence. Denying or ignoring your influence. And frankly, this is true of many Christians today. Many Christians have just stopped caring. They've stopped caring about their influence. For them, the main thing is they've got their ticket to heaven. And, you know, the influence they have doesn't really matter. I can do whatever I want. It doesn't have to show up in who I am publicly. So, those are the flawed ideas about our influence. But as always, I want us to come back now to the key question. What does the Bible say? Specifically in this case, what does Jesus say? In the passage we read, Jesus provides two illustrations of the power of our influence. In verse 13, we are the salt of the earth. And the second illustration comes in verses 14 to 16, we are the light of the world. I love this because the images Jesus chooses were common, ordinary items in the poorest of homes. Every home in the first century world would have had salt and would have had a small oil lamp. In fact, as Jesus was growing up, undoubtedly in his home, he watched many times as Mary prepared their food with salt, and he watched as twilight came and someone lit the oil lamp that illumined their little home, just like the rest of homes in that time period. So he takes two very common items from the ordinary home, and he makes them a powerful picture of our influence. 
Today, I want us to look just at the first illustration. Verse 13, we are the salt of the earth. Look at that verse again. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, there's several questions that verse invites. The first question that we need to answer is what's the picture? What's the picture? You are the salt of the earth. Let's start there. In the Greek text, the word you is emphatic. In the Greek language, if you want to let someone know who the verb is referring to, who's the subject of the verb, you simply create an ending. And that ending on the verb tells you whether it's he or you or, or whatever that, that subject might be. But if you want to make it emphatic, you actually put the pronoun in the sentence. And that's what Jesus does here. It's as if he's saying this, you and only you are the salt of the earth. Now, think for a moment about how extraordinary that statement is. Jesus preached this sermon early in his ministry. He's surrounded right at this moment by a huge crowd of the curious. But he makes this statement, not to that crowd, but rather to the 12 men that he had just chosen that morning to be his official representatives, his apostles. And he makes it to the slightly larger group of his followers that are gathered around them. So there's the 12, and then there's the gathering of his followers. Together, probably not more than a couple of hundred people. A relatively small group of farmers and fishermen Merchants and poor people from the backwater area of Galilee in a little tiny nation called Israel in the first century. And Jesus says to them, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Wow. And notice, by the way, Jesus doesn't say you are the salt of the nation Israel, but you are the salt of the whole earth. And notice in verse 14, you are the light of the what? The world, those two metaphors together highlight our global mission as Christians. Our life is not about our little world. It's much broader than that. But there's another important observation to make about this statement in what Jesus doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say, you should be the salt of the earth. You ought to be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. To the newest of those who had become his followers, to those who had been tracking with him for more than a year, to all of them, he says, you are the salt. Salt was a fascinating choice for Jesus to use for this metaphor. It's a fascinating mineral substance. Sodium chloride. It's formed when the unstable metal sodium reacts with chlorine gas. It's the only family of rocks that humans eat, at least the normal ones of us. (laughs) Salt was, was very, very important in the first century world. In fact, the Romans put a high price on salt. Their first road, I don't know if you know this or not, but their first road, the first Roman highway was the Via Salaria. It went from Rome, guess where? To the Adriatic Sea where salt was gathered. Salt is essential to human life. And I'm about to tell you more than I know here, but 
It regulates the water content of our bodies. All of our cells have a certain amount of salt content, and this salt content must be balanced with the liquid surrounding the cell. If there's too much salt, guess what happens? The cell dehydrates. If there's not enough salt, then water can flow in, rupturing the cell wall. So that balance is absolutely crucial. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Power of Your Influence. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.